0: This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at altizen.com, A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Steve Glavesky, founder of Collective Campus and host of the Future Squared podcast. We discuss corporate innovation on the whole and how companies from Asia-Pacific are thinking about disruption and the backstory behind his podcast.
1: Hi, Steve. Hey, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. How are you doing? I'm
0: good. You're based in Australia, right?
1: Well, we're based in Australia and as of January, Singapore.
0: Yes, I'm talking to Steve Gleveski, founder of Collective Campus and also we have met for a coffee recently and I also found out that Steve ran a very interesting podcast which we will discuss a little bit later. So Steve, I want to get to know you better. How do you start your career?
1: Well, Bernard, that's a great question because it is a a far cry from what I'm doing today, uh, working in the chaotic world of corporate innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, I started my career in financial audit, of all places, which is a sort of a rite of passage for many people and many entrepreneurs I know. That was back with the Auditor General's Office in in Melbourne, Australia, uh, back about 10 years ago. And from there, it was a few hops, skips, and jumps, a bit of personal reinvention along the way, uh, working for the likes of uh, Ernst & Young in IT risk and IT process improvement consulting, working over at Macquarie Bank, which is Australia's largest investment bank, and also in the innovation team in its embryonic stages over at KPMG a few years ago. So that's effectively how I started my career. I spent about just under 10 years in the corporate space before pivoting, if you will. It's probably not the apt word, but pivoting to the world of startups and entrepreneurship, founding a funded tech startup back in 2012 called Hotdesk, which was an office sharing platform. Basically, think Airbnb. For office space, and you know, I like telling that story because I was still working full time at Quarry Bank at the time, and I had this side hustle going, and managed to raise something like a hundred. Well, it's not something like it, it was $156,000 off what was less than a $2,000 investment while in full-time employment, which I always use as a case study for people who are in the corporate game and say want to go out and do their own thing. It can be done. You don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can do it while you're gainfully employed. That's an interesting point. So throughout your
0: career, what are the interesting lessons that you can share with my audience?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say the number one thing really comes down to connecting the dots and whether that's between people you meet, skills you acquire, learnings you come across from reading books and listening to awesome podcasts like yours, Bernard, experience you have. I think the more you know, the more you can connect and the more opportunities you see. And One of my favorite quotes from a book I read when I was quite young, which was Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which basically said something like, there's gold everywhere, but people aren't trained to see it. And I feel the more you immerse yourself in different places, connected with different people, the more you're trained to see those opportunities. So, for me, it really is just getting out there and doing as much as possible. And, I mean, outside of that, building relationships, which is a part of that, and just being self-aware. You know, for many years in my 20s, I guess I would respond to questions and circumstances from a place of uh, emotion whether it was anger or sadness and I think just having an element of self-awareness just means you can separate emotion from decisions and you just make better decisions and you have better relationships and you get better results so that's a couple of things I would say have been some key learnings for me. Can you briefly talk about your current role as the founder of Collective
0: Campus and what do you do?
1: Yeah, sure. So, my personal philosophy when it comes to innovation, the world's greatest underutilized energy source, you know, it's not the sun, the wind, or the waves, it's our organizations and their people. So, with Collective Campus, we help executives and their teams adopt mindsets, methods, tools to help them come up with ideas, but not only come up with ideas, build and test those ideas. How can you effectively test new business models while keeping an eye on the core business model to you know, move the company slowly but surely to where the world is going? And I think that's something that a lot of organizations have not been built to do. Most organizations, large organizations, have a business model that currently makes money. They've been built to deliver, but they've not really been built to discover new business models that requires a totally different way of thinking totally different way of executing and that's effectively what we help organizations with so can you talk about some of the
0: interesting case studies which a company have advised on corporate innovation
1: Yeah, definitely. So with Collective Campus, I mean, we do a mixed bag of things, which are all geared towards that goal of, uh, helping companies, you know, skate to where the puck is, if I, if I can quote Wayne, Wayne Gretzky or skate to where the puck is going rather. And so that entails everything from going into organizations and performing capability assessments, training staff in, methodologies like design thinking and lean startup and corporate innovation theory, running hackathons, accelerated programs, and so on. So to speak to some case studies, I can give you an example of a regulated organization. So Australian Unity would be one. They're a private health insurer. And so when you think about private health insurers, you think overly regulated, move slowly. They can't really build prototypes and take them to market and experiment but that's not necessarily the case. With most early stage innovation, we don't necessarily need to take products to market. What we wanna determine is whether the problem, the solution, the other assumptions underpinning our idea, whether that's the distribution channels, the price points, the customer segment, we can test that without even building anything in most cases. And so with Australian Unity, we ran a two-day hackathon. We ran something like 25 experiments, whereas for this organization, if they did that internally, it would have taken them months and we we're able to validate some ideas, invalidate other ideas, and draw out a number of other insights. So that's one example where working with a regulated company and introducing them to the lean startup can actually pay dividends. And not only does it help you identify areas for exploration, it also stops the company from overinvesting in the wrong idea by figuring out early that, hey, this assumption's wrong, that assumption's wrong, let's reassess. So that's one case study I can speak to. Another one is we're currently running a Asia PAC's first legal tech startup accelerator. So that's partnering with um, Mills Oakley. What we're seeing a lot of organizations who are built to deliver, not so much to discover, is rather than try to redesign their organization, they're going outside the building and partnering with startups. And this is a pretty, you know, it's not an uncommon thing. So with Mills Oakley, which is a mid-tier law firm, They basically said, look, we realize that legal is going to be completely transformed, artificial intelligence, contract automation, that is going to radically lower the barriers to entry for smaller firms to come into play and lower the cost to serve as well, which means the business model of many legal firms will be questioned. And so they rather than do that internally, they partnered with us to run this Legal Tech Accelerator program, and so we've currently... We're about week nine out of week 13, and what we're doing there, we've got companies working on, say, chatbot legal assistance, we've got companies working on contract review automation, and the sponsor in this case, which is Mills Oakley, will take some equity. But not only that, what's important here is that because it is a industry-specific accelerator, Mills Oakley can actually then provide access to its resources, its lawyers, its clients, to help the startup learn quicker, to test quicker, to effectively move towards product market fit. And what we've seen, the startups coming through that program, within the first six to seven weeks, they already started to generate some traction, which is is pretty good for, for many startups. I mean, you hear so many stories of startups working for a year or two and still getting nowhere because they just haven't been trained how to map out their assumptions, build effective prototypes, determine the key metrics, run some tests, learn from that, and move as quickly as they can to figure out What works? That's a couple of case studies, and we're currently putting the works. We've currently got in the works a edutech startup accelerator in Singapore, which will have a global focus. So we're partnering with a K12 education provider in Singapore. This will take place in the second half of the year, and effectively, we'll be looking for edtech startups who want to either help democratize access to education in developing economies, or want to help build software that kids who have quote-unquote learning disabilities can use to accelerate their learning, because not every child learns effectively in a classroom of 20 to 30 kids with one teacher at the front of the room, expecting everyone to progress at the same rate. So we're always driven by solving real tangible problems, whether it is increasing access to justice, whether it is improving education outcomes, but by leveraging the resources, the domain expertise, the people of large organizations, bringing to the table, the startups who can move quickly, who can run experiments. That way, well, we've definitely seen more results rather than, yeah, rather than standalone startup accelerators where they don't have access to those networks or rather than large companies trying to innovate, but not really being built to move quickly, to experiment, to embrace failure. That's interesting
0: because I think in the last three to four years, I think across Asia Pacific, most of the corporations suddenly jumped on the bandwagon and started working with startups. I think the rise of corporate Accelerators have quadrupled, I mean, in, in several Asian countries. Mm-hmm. And this comes to the really major topic that we, you and I wanted to discuss because I think you are on the ground doing this corporate innovation with a lot of companies. And I think corporate innovation is a very different kind of beast because you are taking things like lean startup, business canvas, and design thinking, which some companies decided instead of trying to bring in the outsiders, they bring in entrepreneurs and then build their in-house team. But let me just start by maybe getting an understanding of that. Can you define
1: what corporate innovation is in today's context? Uh, It's about becoming more adept at exploration and not just execution. And that effectively requires a fundamental shift in the way organizations are structured, the way they think, the way they make decisions. It requires them to be more adaptable, to embrace uncertainty, to take risks, to fail, to embrace those failures, to share them, to learn from them and to move forward. It requires empowering people across the entire org chart, not just senior managers, not just middle managers, to contribute ideas, to try things, to fail. And it also requires them to engage their customers early and often. I often use the analogy of being like a big ship, right? Setting sail to to foreign lands, but you know, halfway through that trip you get a message saying, oh, actually we need to be changing our direction, but because it's such a big ship, it's hard to do that. So what corporate innovation is you need to keep that ship afloat and that's your core business model, but you need to slowly change the direction that it's going. So that say by 2020 or by 2025, when the world has moved on to other business models, to other technologies, you've moved with it rather than just continuing to do what you're doing and ending up at that foreign land. And suddenly, you know, the party's over at another Island, for example, it is about, you know, this dual sort of Speed, And I think a lot of organizations are trying this and it is early days for many of them. And I can talk to some examples in a little while. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater by focusing purely on move fast and break things. Let's adopt the Facebook mantra. Everybody just run experiments. That's That's going to kill the organizations because 90% of our revenues, if not more, are still coming from our core business model. And we just need that to just tick over, keep making money. We've got our processes and policies and operations built around that. Let's focus on that. But at the same time, maybe 5 to 10% of our R&D should be focused on exploring where the world is going. So it's about a two-pronged approach rather than one or the other.
0: This is where I want to pick your brain on. So the problem with most major corporations is that they treat their innovation arm as a support unit, and it is always a difficulty in trying to integrate into the major business lines. In your opinion, how can this problem be resolved?
1: Yeah, and that's, that's a fantastic question. It's something a lot of organizations struggle with. But like anything, first and foremost, you need to determine what are your goals, what are your organization's Objectives. Do you want to build internal capability? Do you want to incubate ideas internally? Are you after what McKinsey calls horizon one incremental innovation? Are you after adjacent innovation or are you after breakthrough disruptive innovation? Different types of innovation will require different approaches, different skill sets, different technologies even? Do you want to develop external resources and then bring them in, like you mentioned earlier? And also, does your organization support integration back into the mothership, or is it better off leaving investments out on their own? Like the example I gave of uh, the Mills Oakley Law Firm, who said, look, we're built to practice law, we're not built to innovate, so we're just going to invest in startups externally. In terms of how to integrate it back into the business line, sometimes that's a good good thing to do, but it's not always. I mean, we see evidence of companies, whether it's acquiring startups and then integrating into the mothership and then killing the startups, because the mothership is not built to sustain the startup's culture, which is moving quickly, experimenting, trying lots of different things. And then the founders will get fed up and leave. And suddenly you've paid X millions of dollars for some startups who are no longer valuable. So in terms of different approaches, I mean, you could have number one, which would be an ambidextrous type setup, where initially you'll separate this innovation team, and then you'll integrate them after they've, say, found product market fit of some kind. In order for this to work, though, they need to uh, leverage the core assets of the mothership, right? There's no point setting up spinoffs who aren't leveraging the core assets of the mothership where there's no synergy because you may as well just invest in startups if that's the case, unless you're doing it because you want to invest in your employees and you want to invest in something called... Um, Entre-employees, where in today's environment, more employees than ever, I mean, employee tenors are shorter than ever, right? Less than two years in most organizations, most Western economies. And what happens then is you have knowledge being lost. Um, Knowledge management becomes an issue. Also, not only that, but talent acquisition and retention. Getting the best talent in the building is now becoming more difficult. Obviously, large companies are competing with startups. While they are not paid as well, they do provide more freedom and oftentimes more purpose than the large organization. So you're competing with that. So if you can show potential prospective employees that, hey, we get that you're going to leave, but if you've got entrepreneurial ambitions, we might actually invest in you and we'll help you get your... Venture off the ground, that type of thing. yeah. So there's a number one, which is an ambidextrous setup. Number two is effectively spinning off organisations, and I mentioned that earlier. This is where you you know spin them out with their own KPIs, their own values, processes, resources. I mentioned most large organisations are built to deliver, not to discover. But this spin-off will have its own KPIs. It won't be ROI. It will be return on learnings. It will be early stage innovation metrics. Like, well, this was our assumption. We ran this test for one week. A thousand people saw a particular ad, and of those one thousand people. We'll say 30 clicked and of those 30 that clicked two signed up and then we spoke to them this is what we learned so early stage innovation requires very different metrics to net present value roi problem with roi and net present value is that in order to make them look good you basically decrease the denominator I and mean, it makes them look bigger right but by doing that you focus on the short term you focus purely on stretching your existing s curve rather than jumping to the next s curve and that's what companies like Borders and you know, Compaq and, of course, Blockbuster were guilty of doing. So there's a couple of approaches. And, I mean, other ones are where you incubate teams internally. That's more for your incremental innovation. You might have spin-offs where they're focused on a particular type of technology as well, right? So it could be AI. I know there's a massive increase in um, innovation centers in Asia focused on AI. And then you could have hybrids, which is a combination of external participants and internal participants. But there's a lot of different things organizations should do but effectively it comes down to the goals do you want to improve capability internally do you want to build new ideas that the company simply has some ownership of or do you want to build new business lines and and that requires you know that ambidextrous approach we have someone working externally with their own KPIs they find product market fit and then you bring them back in but you need to make sure you can do that without killing them and that the organization they're joining has supporting culture and environment and that's reflective of processes, values, resources, systems, and so on. Here's the part which I probably will talk a little bit about
0: personal experience. I think there are some perspectives on corporate innovation. Mm. One view is that you spin them off as a separate company and then let them compete with the company. The other is to actually grow it from within inside. But the issue has is always been incumbent versus disruptor. I mean, in my current company, I was actually leading the business unit itself because then it allows me to deploy innovation much, much effectively to solve the business unit's problems and subsequently move it from incremental to disruptive innovation. Whereas in the previous company that I worked with, which felt very badly, was an incumbent versus disruptor model. The incumbent had no interest of trying to integrate the disruptors' business because it, it just goes back down to this is my bottom line. I don't want it to fall. But what happens was that they are actually starting to get slaughtered. So how do you actually balance these perspectives? I mean, for me now, I, my personal view is that, you know, corporate innovation centers as a support unit cannot work. Maybe it's a strong opinion, but I think that the only way it could work is actually, you know, you hire the innovation unit, you make them run the business unit. Make them have to the feel the pain of PNL, and just get them to run it.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a great question. And it is. I mean, first and foremost, that comes back to the mindset and education as well of senior leaders in the organization, where they see the whole income of V disruptor sort of paradigm, I guess. And uh, you know, ultimately, if you're a progressive leader, you won't. S- the term disruption itself, I mean, it sounds scary, right? But ultimately, disruption is an opportunity, and that's first and foremost, what leaders should see it as. So the whole incumbent-be-disruptive thing, I think, comes down to the organization and the way they perceive the way they perceive things. And we've seen that time and time again where organizations just focus on their core business model, don't want to cannibalize it, and therefore don't invest in new emerging technologies, things that may cannibalize their business model, and so on. So that's one thing I would look at. But also, you know, it's a silly move to take innovation outside and not leverage, you know, like you were saying, the, the domain expertise, networks, resources of the inside. And we see this so many t- times. I mean, I use a term, and it's not my term. Steve Blank, I believe, came up with this term a few years ago, which is innovation theater. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head with innovation centers or innovation labs where, you know, they're popping up every day. I think the, I think in Asia now, from what I understand, Asia has overtaken Europe and the US in terms of innovation labs. Something like uh, 30%, I believe, of labs globally are in Asia. And, you know, when I read these articles about another, innovation lab being set up, it's oftentimes cringeworthy because I hear, oh yeah, you know, we've set this space up and we've got beanbags and table tennis tables and stuff like that. And it's like, that's all well and good, but where is the substance? How does it integrate back into the mothership? What is the objective? How is it going to deliver results? Oftentimes you have things operating in isolation and they don't really go anywhere. And now to be fair, I'd say it's still pretty early. In the whole innovation lab experiment, I mean we know innovation disruptive innovation in particular can take you know three, four five six, seven years to actually generate some returns and that 's why venture capitalists have you know a long term investment horizon so I think it would be unfair to say that they don 't work and for most organizations it 's part of their journey right it 's part of their innovation journey it 's still early days and i 'm a big believer that in order to effectively innovate in a large company, there are no silver bullets and so you basically need to apply you know, the lean startup philosophy to your innovation program to effectively figure out what works for your company. I think executives should stop trying to look for a silver bullet by way of an innovation lab or, you know, quarterly hackathons because that often doesn't work. And Mm. it's also critical that executives think about, you know, what is the long-term impact? Like, yes, I get that initially, we just want to try different things and we want to show that we're being innovative, But what if we're running all these hackathons and we haven't got money or we don't give people time to explore ideas after the hackathon? Do we think that's going to have a long-term positive effect or a detrimental effect? I mean, if we're not seeing results after a while, your employees are going to grow disgruntled and they're not going to support it anymore, especially your more, say, entrepreneurial thinking employees. Senior management will start to say, okay, we're not going to invest any more in this because it's obviously not generating results. You know, if, if we've been given a green light to explore innovation, we should be careful and diligent in in terms of how we do that. And we should be looking for some quick wins early in the piece because if you get those quick wins, even if it's simple Horizon 1 stuff, it means that you can use that to build a case for ongoing efforts with senior management. You can use that to you know share case studies with your staff and show them that, hey, look, we're trying all these different things. Here's some actual tangible results. And that will effectively galvanize people. But if you just do wow. things for the sake of doing things and say, hey, look at us, we're wearing you know, hoodies and jeans to work on Friday, we're like Facebook, <laughs> that's not really good to deliver results.
0: I just thought I should just add the point is that the, the need to generate for quick wins is actually very important. Mm-hmm. I think in one of my present corporate role, we actually started doing a lot of quick wins by solving immediate problems with the innovation. And then subsequently, we try, we actually could work together to do real disruptive innovation. That being said, I hear you about the Asian companies have set up, have set up many center of innovations. So how are Asian companies handling corporate innovation then?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we've, uh, you know, since moving to, to Singapore back in January, we've met with just short of 100 companies across predominantly Singapore and Hong Kong, and, you know, there is definitely a... Strong investment, or at least an appetite for innovation across the board. And I mean, that's being reflected in the number of innovation centers popping up. Whether or not they're effective or not, that's a different question. But we have seen massive growth, even from March to October of 2016, something like 35% growth in innovation centers. So they're just popping up pretty much every second day. But what we're seeing, some companies are, I would say, advanced and progressive because what's usually a telltale sign is when you meet with, say, an innovation manager at a company and they are a part-time, it's a part-time role. It, that clearly screams that this company is not serious about innovation because you can't be you know, marketing manager for you know, three days a week and then innovation manager for two times a week for a company that, say, has a market cap of $5 billion. That just does not make sense. So when I look at companies like uh, DBS, In Singapore, they've got quite a big investment in innovation. You know, very large team. They're running regular hackathons, idea challenges. They're looking at different ways to embed that back into the mothership. I know Alvin Chia over at DBS is releasing a book in the very near future on running corporate hackathons. So to me, that just demonstrates mindset first and foremost. That DBS and its employees have, that they're very progressive, looking to shift the boundaries. And um, when you see employees actually writing books, that shows that they're really passionate about the subject um, and have enough learnings to, to share something. So they're doing great things. Um, I was over at Lian Fung speaking at a, a speaker innovation forum in Hong Kong in March. And they've also embarked upon an innovation journey, which started about a year ago. And you know, they can see that it's early days, they're learning, they're trying different things. But you know, we see that they are running things like idea challenges, leveraging speakers. Innovation platform where it's about just showing people that it's okay to come up with ideas. In the early stages, that's fine. You know, you look at companies like Toyota, the average Toyota employee contributes something like 100 ideas a year. And so collectively, you have millions of ideas. And while many of these ideas are, say, not new, uh, incremental innovation and so on, it's about the culture first and foremost that people are. They feel comfortable sharing their ideas. They're not self-censoring. You know, we talk about innovation theater and you know, running hackathons and stuff like that with no, no result. I mean, I, I, GE is a great example of that where they actually got Eric Ries, uh, author of The Lean Startup, to train 5,000 middle managers in The Lean Startup approach, right? But what do you think happened when they went back to their business units and they weren't able to, say, move quickly, run experiments, and so on? It didn't work. They needed to revisit the culture And they needed to come up with a whole new value system, which was about putting the customer first, engaging with them from day one, moving quickly, being okay to fail, and that type of thing. And it wasn't until the culture and the processes around that were, say, redesigned, that GE actually started to get results on their lean startup endeavors and managed to decrease time to market for, say, new ideas by Time, not, not just time to market, but time to market validation, more importantly, for new ideas by 80%, which means you can test five times as many ideas with the same amount of money, which means, hey, now we're able to really, say, place a lot of small bets. There's quite a few interesting things going on. You know, Swire is running a blueprint accelerator, which seems to be doing quite well. Visa's got an innovation lab, which... I don't know enough about to really comment on, but Singtel, from what I see, very progressive. You know, they've released things like my Singtel app, uh, web chat, social media channels. You know, I know the guys from DB Schenker recently invested $25 million into Utrip, which is a strategic investment. It's just important here. Rather than just throwing money at startups, say if I'm a technology company and I'm throwing money at, say, a BMX company, you know, I might be able to help them in some way with my distribution, but not Really, right? It's not that much of a strategic alignment. But what DB Schenker is doing with um, Utrip, trip it's part of their digital transformation, right? Because they can now leverage the technology as well as the resources, the human resources of Utrip, trip to make that change rather than trying to do it all On their own. It's going to effectively expedite and streamline transport management. So it's a big thing for them. So it's about if you're going to invest in startups, don't just do it willy-nilly. Identify synergistic startups. Identify startups that you can help by leveraging your domain expertise, by leveraging your networks and your resources to do that. So I would say one thing that Singaporean companies or Asian companies in general may struggle with when it comes to innovation is that fear of failure. And I see this amongst uh, entrepreneurs as well in, in the region where you know, ultimately, and it's not much different to the rest of the world. It's just a little bit more pronounced in Asia where we've been raised in this environment and a culture where, you know, we need to be right all the time. We need to get good results. We don't want to fail. We definitely don't want to fail publicly. What that means is you're not going to try different things that you're not going to take the risks. And if you're not willing to take risks, well, then you're not going to have any breakthroughs. And so it's about how do we, you know, change that culture over time. And I think it's happening in some countries in Asia faster than others. But I believe that will take time because you're basically competing with, I suppose, evolution. I want to spend some time to go into your podcast
0: very quickly. But before that, I actually wanted to thank you for giving me a pretty interesting innovation manager's handbook. So I thought maybe you can briefly talk about what are the three best lessons to give to managers in handling corporate innovation.
1: Right. Yeah. So the Innovation Manager's Handbook that's, that came out a couple of weeks ago. It's on Amazon, so everybody can run out and check that out. Three big lessons. Oof. You put me on the spot there. I would say number one is get the culture right. You know, like Peter Drucker said, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." Right. So you can train people in Lean Startup, but it's not going to work. So number one, get the culture right, and that means addressing processes, systems, resources, values. Once you've got that right, then you want to focus on capability and that is training people in things like not just design thinking. I think design thinking has got this silver bullet uh, lighting associated with it where so many executives think, okay, if we train our people in design thinking, that's it, we've solved our innovation problem. Design thinking will give you ideas. You need things like lean startup or rapid prototyping, customer discovery to test ideas to quickly invalidate or validate which ideas are worth taking to market. So that would be number two. And number three would be just share all of your learnings, whether they're successes or failures, and I think more importantly with failures, because that then sends a signal to the organization that it's okay to try things, it stops people from self-censoring. You know, I interviewed uh, Matthew May on the podcast a little while ago, and he wrote a book called Winning the Brain Game. And in the book, he talks about seven fatal flaws of thinking. One of which was self-censoring, where we're scared to say something just in case it makes us look stupid. We're scared to share our ideas just in case, you know, people think, "Oh no, no that doesn't really make sense." Or someone might say something to you, and they might say, "Oh, did you hear about this?" and Oftentimes, people will say, oh, yeah, yeah, I did, just so you don't look like you're out of the loop. And then later on, you'll end up Googling it just to see what they were talking about. So you know, Amazon's a great example of that, where they run a, a monthly award ceremony for people that have failed. So if I ran an experiment, it failed, I shared the learnings with the organization, I then qualify for, for an award. But I must have ran the experiment without permission, which speaks volumes about the culture that they're building at Amazon when it comes to just experimentation. So get the culture right, train people, And then just make it latently clear that you're allowed to try different things, empower people to get out there and experiment. So you mentioned about your guests on the podcast. So you run
0: a podcast called Future Squared Podcast. I think you have brought in some very interesting guests on the show. But I want to first ask you, what's the inspiration behind the podcast?
1: Yeah, look, the the inspiration behind the podcast, it's multi-pronged. I mean, one it, it is a great brand building exercise for for anyone, whether it's personal brand or company brand. I think podcasting is one of the best things you can do to reach a large audience. We're we're currently getting more than 100,000 listens a month. We just won the Australian Podcasting Awards People's Choice Award for entrepreneurship and business. So, it's it's just a really powerful tool and While podcasting has been around for a few years in the US, I think in Asia, in Australia, it's still pretty much early days. So it's a great time to get involved in this type of thing. Learnings would be another big inspiration behind it. I mean, I've managed to speak with people from all walks of life, from different fields, uh, whether it's geopolitics, culture, entrepreneurship, nutrition all sorts of stuff neuroscience and it's just expanded my view of the world and like I was saying at the at the start of the show you know the more you know the more you can connect dots and identify opportunities so it's been incredible an incredible learning tool and a great way to build relationships with thought leaders who we then work with on a number of different levels.
0: So what are the major themes of the podcast? Do you do a lot more on future technologies, future business models?
1: Yeah, yeah, so uh, Future Squared, I mean the tagline is corporate innovation, entrepreneurship and self improvement. It's a pretty mixed bag. I like to say we're, we're kind of like the Harvard Business Review podcast meets the Tim Ferriss show. Somewhere, somewhere in between, you know, we have a bit of fun, uh, <laughs> but it's not too uh, academic, I Shall I say? So, any productivity hacks, mindset, psychology, biohacking, nutrition, exercise, philosophy, everything. But the main tenet of the podcast is business model innovation, technology innovation, entrepreneurship. What's happening in that space? What are the learnings? And it's always leveraging key thought leaders. So it's not just people who perhaps don't have too much credibility in the space. You know, we've had people like Alec Ross on the show, who was Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton's advisor for technology and innovation. And no, he did not hack her email. So just FYI there. It is really standing on the shoulders of giants. And I try to bring thought leaders from the fields onto the show. And, you know, I guess the, the the fact that the podcast has grown so quickly in terms of the number of listeners um, from zero to 100,000 in the last 13 months um, shows that it appears to be resonating with people. So other than Alec, who are the other
0: interesting guests on your show and what are the lessons learned there?
1: Yeah, sure. So some of the other interesting guests are, uh, you know, Lawrence Levy, a former CFO of Pixar from 94 when, uh, before Toy Story came out through to 2002 when I believe Mo- Monsters Inc came out. So that was Credible guest, I'll talk about him in a second. We had Tim Harford on there who wrote the book The Undercover Economist and more recently uh, a book called Messy. He's also got a podcast on the BBC called um, 50 Things That changed the modern economy. Don't quote me on that. Uh, Steve Blank, who everybody in the corporate innovation and entrepreneurship circle knows. Jamie Wheel from the Float Genome Project. Uh, he wrote a book with Stephen Kotler recently called a Stealing Fire. Uh, Peter Diamandis has appeared on the show. Everybody knows and loves Peter Diamandis. So it's been incredible, the doors that it's opened to, to thought leaders and the conversations that I've been lucky enough to have. And I mean, some of the lessons. That stand out, you know, Lawrence Levy from Pixar, you know, when he joined the organization in 1994, they were basically a, a startup. Um, he got a call from Steve Jobs who said, Hey, I saw you in a magazine a couple of years ago and I thought that maybe one day we'd work together and I, I wanted to talk to you about this opportunity we've got with a company called Pixar. And Lawrence had not heard of Pixar. Nobody had heard of Pixar at that point, but he came on board and apparently the, the organization was a mess. Their finances were a mess and they needed to raise funding. And there's a lot of lessons in this one for corporates and startups. When they went looking for funding, they effectively made sure that investors understood the nature of the animation business. The nature of spending X amounts, X, X millions of dollars, getting to, say, halfway through a script, halfway through a production, and then say, actually, this isn't working, let's start again. So they effectively built in a buffer for creative mistakes, is what Lawrence Lawrence called it. And by having that buffer for creative mistakes, you're building in the expectation that you will fail at things. And they wrote or rewrote the script for Toy Story something like four times. At one point, Disney actually pulled production for for Toy Story. And eventually, after a four-year period, they got it to market, and it made something like $30 million on a $3 million investment. And then they ipo would very shortly after that, and they've since gone on to make... $10 billion. So actually, I believe it was a $30 million investment and $300 million uh, box office take for Toy Story. But yeah, they've done incredibly well. But it was about building in a buffer for creative mistakes. He also talks about the brain trust, which uh, Ed Catmull talks about this in the book Creativity Inc., where he says... You know, Our organizations are plagued with people who are scared to tell us what they really think. They're scared of hurting other people's feelings. They're scared of, say, giving up political cards in the organization. And it comes back to what I was saying earlier a little about censoring ourselves. Now, with the Brain Trust, what they did once once a month, I believe it was, people came together, senior executives, creatives, and so on, and they were basically allowed to be as brutal as they liked. If a movie sucked, they would just out and out say it. And if they felt someone needed to be criticized about something, they were just out and out say it. And so by having that transparency, it meant that there was no, you know, no wasting time trying to play, no wasting time with niceties. They just say, okay, why isn't this working? Let's have a conversation. Let's fix this. Let's fix that. And that's how they were able to find product market fit eventually. Mm. So. I mean, that's a couple of great lessons there. Um, Tim Harford, in his recent book, Messy, he talks about how chaos effectively underpins creativity. And he gave some great examples. And this ties into the whole culture eats strategy for breakfast piece. One example he gave was of MIT. There was a building at MIT called Building 20. This was basically a discarded old asbestos, a cinder block-ridden building. And it was something that, it's somewhere where students, student hobbyists, just technologists from, from the organization, sorry, from the university, came together just to throw things against the wall. It's basically where stuff that didn't matter, according to the university, took place. But what kind of stuff that didn't matter took place in this building was Nobel award-winning stuff. You had Rad Lab, which won something like nine... Nobel Awards, coming out of, out of um, Building 20. And one of the things that they actually came up with was radar technology, which was fundamental in winning World War II. Computer hacking came out of Building 20. There was a, an arcade video game called Space War. In the 60s, it was the first arcade video game built. That came out of Building 20. Noam Chomsky revolutionized linguistics in this building. But what it all comes back to is that people were just given the freedom and the control to come together. You had people from different disciplines coming together and just trying things. And that's where so much magic happened. By giving your people the freedom, they can become more, shall we say, they'll they'll tap into talents that they didn't think possible. And he provides a story of desk space and how if you have desk space and you've got the freedom to do what you want with it, and then that's taken away, which happened at BHP a few years ago when Marius Kloppers was was the CEO. He was very OCD-driven. And if you weren't allowed to have more than one photo on your desk and had to be a particular size, if you had a coffee mug or a tea mug on your desk, the handle needed to be facing a certain way. And that's pretty much it. You weren't allowed to have anything else on your desk. And what he found was if you give people that freedom and then take it away, they become really, really disgruntled. Now what we're seeing with some organizations, I believe it's Asana in the in the US, they – Give their employees, and I don't know if I'm a fan of this. I think it's a little bit excessive, but $10,000 upon joining the organization to dress up their desk space, to do whatever they want with it, make it as crazy as they want, make it look like the... Uh the what's the what's the car from Back to the Future? <laughs> make it look like that. I don't know what you do with ten thousand dollars on a desk space, but that's what people get because they realize that if you make people comfortable, give them some freedom to do what they want with their space, they're far more likely to, to enjoy going to work and to do their best. So, there's a couple of um, insights there, and I mean, one other thing he does talk about, which is well, no, he doesn't talk about this, but it's also uh, symptomatic of the whole environment underpinning innovation thing, which is in um, Melbourne. What we're seeing is more urbanization. More urbanization means more apartment blocks popping up, which means less houses. Less houses, less people driving means less garages. What do we often find in garages in the, in the inner suburbs? Or what, what did we find in garages? Think about 15, 16-year-olds, you find rock bands, right? Now, what we're seeing is more rock bands are coming from the outer suburbs where people still live in houses, where people still drive cars, where people still have garages. And now in the inner city, you're finding more electronic artists because I can just sit in my bedroom with my headphones on and practice. Now, that speaks volumes about the environment that you create in your organization can have unintended consequences on people's behaviors. So it's important to get that right. Environment and culture, get that right before you try anything else. Otherwise, your other endeavors are more likely to fail. And if you're not willing to invest in that, then you're better off just investing in startups and leaving them outside of the building.
0: So Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about corporate innovation. And I guess it will be interesting to talk about this at some later time. Once again, help my audience. How do they find you?
1: Well, it was a pleasure, firstly, Bernard, to appear on Analyze Asia, a big fan of the show. Your audience can find me and Collective Campus on at collectivecamp.us. And they can find me on Twitter at Steve Glaveski, G-L-A-V-E-S-K-I. They can listen to the podcast uh, at futuresquare.xyz. It's also available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And they can also hit me up on Twitter. Oh, sorry, on LinkedIn.
0: And you can find me at bleongcw or at Subscribe to us and analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. We have just launched our new newsletter and we have a first insight. And of course, sign up for our mailing list and of course, tweet to us, recommend us on Overcast or give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And once again, Steve, thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you very much, Bernard.